0: Everyone, thank you all so much for coming to our Friday gallery talk. I just want to introduce Mika Yoshitaki, who is the co curator of the exhibition. He'll be introducing Mike Osborne. Thanks, everyone, for coming. We are delighted to have photographer and assistant professor, Georgetown University, Mike Osborne, here today with us. He will be discussing Bernd and Hillebecker's Winding Towers and um, Thomas Struth's Cinema, Anaheim and Sightbound a show that allows one to speculate one's relationship to and consider the distinct qualities of a physical or temporal sight, both historical and personal, real and imagined, through the supposedly objective means of photography. Osborne's own work um, revolves around themes of place and the literary possibilities of photography exploring subjects such as architecture, public space, landscape and technology. His work reflects his interest in the perpetual flux of the contemporary world which can be observed in projects such as Enter the Dragon in Beijing, Shanghai and Taipei, underground in Stuttgart, Germany and Floating Island. His first monograph through Daylight Books published this year which captures the landscapes um, in the Great Basin Desert town of Wendover, Utah and West Wendover. Nevada. And following this talk there will be a book signing in the museum shop of Floating Island. Mike. Great.
1: Well uh, thanks so much uh, for coming everyone and thanks uh, for the introduction and also for the invitation. So I'm going to be talking about two works primarily in this show. The Bechers grid here and then also the piece over there by Thomas Stroot. So I'm going to begin with the Bechers uh, and I'll just say a couple of, of quick things about it. It's probably in in a certain respect, the oldest piece in the show. It's the works, the individual photographs were shot between 1966 and 1989. It's also the only black and white piece in the show, and it's also the only one that was made collaboratively by two people. The other reason that I chose it is that it also strikes me as a kind of important touchstone for a a number of the other works in the show, uh, and I'll speak about that specifically in relation to to the Thomas Strutt picture. So the work is called uh, Winding Towers, uh, and and included in the title is the date, uh, 1966 to 1989. That's the span of time over which the photographs were made. Um, We're looking at 12 silver gelatin prints arranged in a 4x3 grid. Silver gelatin essentially just means that the photographs were shot on film. They were printed in a dark room using an enlarger and lights into the paper and chemicals. This would have been the default uh, kind of way of working in black and white photography at the time that they began this project in around 1957. So what are we looking at? What are are winding towers? Well, um, a winding tower is essentially just a giant elevator or pulley system for raising and lowering material in and out uh, of a mine shaft. And I believe these are all coal mines. Most of them are in uh, the industrial centers of Western Europe. I believe one is in Great Britain, and one is uh, in the United States. So we're looking at 12 manifestations of this particular kind of industrial structure that collectively constitute what the Bechers refer to as a typology. And a typology is basically a system for looking at individual iterations of a particular form, but also functions as a kind of comparative tool that allows you to uh, sort of uh, note the differences uh, between otherwise kind of functionally homogenous structures. The Bechers applied this typological strategy to a range of industrial forms over their 50-year career. Those included uh, winding towers, blast furnaces, uh, water towers, lime kilns, several other kinds of forms, and also uh, domestic architecture. Um, and it's, it's worth noting that there's, even though the, the work itself is, seems kind of very, very cold and almost alien, there is a kind of biographical connection both artists grew up in industrial regions in Germany, and both actually began photographing industrial architecture independently of one another before coming together uh, as students in the late 1950s. In the mid-1960s, when they'd been pursuing this project for about a decade, they began referring to the work as anonymous sculpture, and I think this is a really kind of critical concept in, their, in understanding their work, Basically, they, what I think they meant by this term, anonymous sculpture, is that they're treating the industrial landscape as a kind of ready-made and that they're using photography, in a sense, as a means of shrinking these structures down and kind of smuggling them into the gallery. Obviously, you know, the, these things that they're looking at are, are quite enormous um, and so it's, the photograph is functioning as this mechanism for shrinking and, and then displaying in a 2D form. The, t- the 2D photograph is essentially functioning like a 2D vitrine for a little sculpture. There's a little sculpture inside of that flat rectangle. In a 1972 essay, the minimalist Carl Andre noted about their, or ended his essay uh, on the Bechers uh, with a quotation from Hilla Bescher who said, the question if this was a work of art or not is not very interesting for us. Probably it is situated between the established categories Anyway, the audience which is interested in art would be the most open-minded and willing to think about it. So I think it's also worth pointing out that you know, I mentioned their work in relation to the idea of the ready-made. They're not necessarily using the industrial landscape as a way of kind of provoking questions about whether or not this is art. It's simply that they're interested in these structures and that the art context happens to be the one uh, in which the work is able to function Okay, so typology. What are we supposed to be comparing in a typology? Well, the classification. The idea of typology has its roots in the kind of classification systems of uh, kind of 19th century natural sciences. We can imagine if we walked across the mall over to the uh, to the natural history museum, we could go kind of contemplate the skeletons of different animals and see, you know, a rat and a raccoon and a cat and so on, and kind of get some sort of sense visually of the relationships of these different forms. And by the same token, the Bechers, in in talking about their work, frequently refer to things like families and species and subspecies in the categorization of these different kinds of structures. So so some specific things that we might look at are, for example, the use of concrete or steel or kinds of uh, articulation of the structures, different degrees of ornament and decoration and so on. Um, And if we're looking at these in the context of a book, we can see where specifically each of these structures is from. We can also compare kind of typology to typology. And I think this is where their work becomes particularly interesting. So this is quite small and and difficult to see from where you are inevitably. But what's, what's shown here in the book is a typology of yeah, feel, feel free to come on up or, or look afterwards. Um, what it is, is, is a typology of related structures that the Bechers shot in the mid-1970s, not far from D.C. in the coal country of Pennsylvania. And so those, those structures that you see in those photographs are called Pennsylvania coal mine tipples, and they're totally ramshackle. They look like they were built overnight. They were uh, often quickly abandoned. I think I was reading about them online, and a guy referred to the practice as where they lie, that's where they die or something like that. They, You know, just very, very quickly abandon these when the, when the mind ceases to be profitable. In any case, these very, very small scale structures are in some way a kind of evolutionary cousin of the much more uh, kind of technologically sophisticated iterations of this that you see here. The rest of the images in that particular book are, are also typologies and kind of allow you to compare a sequence or a succession of these kinds of arrangements in a very kind of quick fashion. And and personally, as a practicing artist, this is the the kind of form in which I find their work the most exciting. If you see a sequence of these very quickly, one after the other, the juxtaposition of the 12 images, or the nine images, or the 16 images, whatever form the grid happens to have taken, has the function of almost animating the work. I think of it in, in relation to a couple of analogies. One, that there's something almost musical about it. You have this extremely sort of tight, repetitive structure, but then you have minute variations uh, within that structure that enliven the work visually. The other analogy that occurs to me is is that of looking at the stills of an animation, uh, either of a film or drawn animation, where uh, most of the structure of each frame is the same. You know, there will be only minute changes between one frame and the next, and it's those small changes between the, the various frames that have the effect of, again, animating or breathing life into what are actually still images. And I think you can kind of perceive that dynamic quality to their still photographs when you encounter them in this kind of typological form. It's quite different than if you see them presented as individual kind of stand-alone photographs. Okay, so I wanted to also say a couple of things or or quote the Beschers on some of the things that they were thinking about in relation to their larger practice. So speaking about their work in general in 1971, uh, Baron Bescher noted, came out of the medieval worldview and 18th century castles embody the feudal system. These edifices are to be seen as emanations of our time, as self-representations of our society. In another interview, but in the same year, he made a similar point Using some of the same language, he said, just as medieval thought is manifest in a Gothic cathedral, our age reveals itself in technological buildings and devices. The significance of the architect has dwindled sharply, while cutting edge achievements are quite evidently a matter of technology today. The structural task of past eras have essentially been accomplished. The challenges facing the human ability to invent are now of a technical nature. So at this point, I think it would be Uh, interesting to go over and have a look at the new uh, Struth photograph over here. So there are uh, two works by uh, the the German artist Thomas Struth in this room, this one, Cinema 2013, and then this other one over here that's shot in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. So I'm gonna confine my remarks to to this one, but uh, some of what I have to say relates to both pictures because I think all three of the works are, are engaging time in kind of interesting ways. Before I go on, I want to read, well, uh, two things. One, I should mention that um, in addition to their practice, the beschers were renowned teachers at the Kunst Academy in Dusseldorf, Germany, and Strut is among their uh, most widely admired students. But I want to read uh, the last couple sentences of the quote I read earlier, because I think what Bernd Bescher was saying in that interview applies very much to this photograph. Again, he said, the structural tasks of past eras have essentially been accomplished, The challenges facing the human ability to invent are now of a technical nature. So he made that comment in 1971. You know, this is before the information age, before uh, the advent of the personal computer and kind of all the things that have come out of that. So it's, it's difficult to know exactly what he's referring to when he says that these structural problems are solved, but that we have now technical problems facing us. But I think that the... The, the Struth photograph gives us a, a sense of, sort of one possibility of what he might be referring to. Struth's picture to me seems, well, for, first of all, I'll just say literally what it is. This is a, a ride slash cinema in Disneyland. So these, I think it's called Soarin' over California. And this, this ride here hangs kind of above this cinema so you can see or sort of travel over and through a landscape and it's kind of so it's again, kind of hybrid between a ride and uh, a film and struve has been both very interested as an artist in technology but he's also been very interested in in spectacle and it seems to me that he's talking here both about the literal mechanics of this Disneyland experience but that he's also in a way talking about our relationship to technology and maybe about a kind of strange sort of cultural hunger to merge in some way with technology. The the chairs in this cinema are kind of hanging over the screen. The screen is kind of curved and seems like it's almost ready to to sort of devour those chairs. And so there's this kind of uh, we're we're looking at a kind of moment suspended before these things uh, kind of collide in a way. So the, the Struth photograph strikes me as kind of at least in the way that we experience it in the present, strikes me as a photograph that's sort of trying to look forward. You know, photographs usually look, they're taken and then they become representations of the past. Struth seems to be taking a photograph in the present and having it project us forward slightly. The Bescher's photographs are now doing the opposite. They may have functioned differently when they took them in the first place, but they're now uh, orienting us back towards the past, and in, in fact, back towards a past that's not really recoverable anymore. I should point out that most of the structures, or many, many of the structures that the Bechers photographed during their career have ceased to exist, and that they now exist only in the context of their photographic archive. Writing about this in the early 90s, the curator James Lingwood called the Bechers archive a construction against loss. Uh, He went on to say, the Bechers photographic objective is to preserve the object photographed. The photograph confronts the massive presence of the structure with its expendable ephemeral status with the entropic nature of industrial society. So in this sense, the, the Bescher's project is a, a quintessentially photographic one, um, and it's made an invaluable contribution in a way to the preservation of, of our cultural heritage uh, through this kind of 50-year quest. In concluding, I'll just say a couple of things about kind of how, as a practicing artist, I feel about that 50-year quest. On the one hand, I find the sort of single-minded quality of it sort of going out and photographing these sites for 50 years to be a kind of phenomenal achievement and extremely impressive. On the other hand, I also find it simultaneously baffling. I'm reminded of the myth of Sisyphus, which you probably are all familiar with, a guy who's condemned in the underworld to roll the same boulder up and down a hill, he rolls it to the top and it rolls down and then he repeats over and over. It's not a perfect metaphor, but what I th- think applies in this instance is that the, better, the, the Bechers stuck with the same boulder, in a way, for a very long time. They photographed one industrial plant, they moved on to another, and they repeated over and over for 50 years. And again, that's manifest in, in the dates on that work. Remember that the photographs were shot over a period of 23 years. And I defy anybody to kind of tell me which photographs were made first and which were made last. The point being that there's no, there is no evolution. And that's of course deliberate. So a couple of questions occur to me. The first is when they began doing this work in the late 1950s, how did they know what they were doing? Because in order for the typology to work, one must adhere to the same kind of systematic approach. It's not necessarily hard to adhere to it once the system is in place, but how did they know to create the system in the first place? In other words, they seem to have hatched as artists fully formed, and this is a very, very unusual thing in contemporary art. The second question that occurs to me, and I mean this with absolutely no disrespect, I have the highest respect for their achievement, uh, but I ask myself why on earth would they have wanted to work this way? We tend to associate art practice with things like freedom, with incremental development, with trial and error and chance, with the establishment of rules, but also with the breaking of those rules. But then, you know, I go back, as I did over the course of the last week, and look closely at their work, and my own question still nags at me, but it strikes me as a very foolish one because the work is so good. In any case, the Beshirs seem to be aware of this paradox themselves and I'll just close with something that Hilla Besher said, kind of acknowledging this paradox. Uh, She said, our way of seeing has remained the same over the years yet we do not feel that we have stood still. So that's all I have to say. If you guys have any questions or comments uh, about these pieces or any of the other work in the show I'd be happy to try to answer. Yes, yeah, I mean, the, the works, um, by and large, they're typologies. If you look through the, the book that I brought, most of them are symmetrical. So, for example, if they photograph a water tower, they photograph the water tower dead on so that if you split the photograph in half, the sides A and B are mirrors of one another. In a couple of instances, they also, well, frequently what they will do If the structure has different faces to it, they will photograph it from eight cardinal points. They'll photograph it straight on from behind, from the left, from the right, and then at the 45 degree marks coming out of those axes. In the case of the winding towers, they photograph them both ways. They photograph them dead on, but they also photograph them from this very slightly oblique angle that gives you the front face, but also a perception of the depth on the side. And they're, the winding towers are sort of unique in their collection of typologies in that way. But I think it's it's also um, worth pointing out that there are a couple of the winding towers that they photograph from the opposite angle. So usually they're photo- photographing to the right and on the front side, but in a couple over there, like in the bottom row, they photograph from the left. And so they're you know, I was talking at the end about these kind of rules and the breaking of rules. They do occasionally break their own rules, and you don't know exactly why they broke the rule. Um, Maybe they physically couldn't get on the front right side. In some cases, they like built structures, scaffolding, to allow themselves to achieve certain vantage points. But, you know, for whatever reason, they didn't photograph, say, the second one from the bottom, or second one from the left on the bottom row from that same precise vantage point. I mentioned the idea of a kind of animation. It's somehow those errors in the system, those glitches in the system, are what, uh, in some way, kind of animate the work and and kind of uh, we already appreciate the rigor. So it's these little breaks in the system that somehow become exciting visually. Any other questions? Yeah? Yes, they were uh, kind of maniacal about this. They really only photographed in overcast, drab light. Fortunately, they were in Germany and a lot and you know had, had plenty of it to work with. But yeah, they, they deliberately did that as a way of minimizing the differences between the images. And I have to say, if, um, in the back of that Pennsylvania coal mine tipples book that I passed around, there are, you do see a couple of photographs where, presumably because they were traveling and they were in Pennsylvania and had limited time and, and so on, you do see some typologies where like suddenly it's sunny and suddenly there's like tone in the sky, and it is, it is distracting. I mean, they were, they were right, I think, you know, for their system to be really particular about this. They also did things like filtering, so maybe if there was some tone in the sky, if the sky was slightly blue, they might have shot with a blue filter or something that would make the tone of the sky more white uh, in a black-and-white print. Yeah, I think uh, related to your question is also why they didn't photograph in color. It's the same same thing. Part of the reason why they didn't photograph in color is they started this in the 1950s and very few artists were working in color photography at the time, but it's also easy to imagine how distracting it would be if something was red and something was blue and so on. So again, both, both decisions seem to be, to be ways of uh, minimizing difference between these things that they're trying to compare in formal terms. Any other questions? I was your idea of or you
0: mentioned
1: anonymous as term. Was it, seems that yeah I mean, I read that quote earlier where they talked about how they didn 't really care if it worked in an art context. It just so happened that the people who would come to an art event you guys' it's their way of flattering you guys the, the people who would come to the uh, uh, to come to see a work in the art context would be open to it It, it strikes me as it, that maybe that 's related to the question that you 're getting at is that yet they're interested in them as sculpture they 're interested clearly in the photographic process because I mean, one of the things that's interesting about them photographically is that they make 10 million decisions to make it look like they made no decisions. It's a style that has no style and it's, you know, they photographed with eight different lenses ranging from a 90 millimeter to a 600 millimeter. It's bizarre uh, to work with a view camera and a 600 millimeter lens from a a technical standpoint. Uh, They did things like had two tripods set up to hold the camera. What a 600 millimeter lens means is that in order to be in focus, it has to be the bellows have to be racked out uh, 600 millimeters, several feet. So they had have two tripods holding the thing up in order for the picture not to be blurry. So they make all of these decisions photographically to make themselves invisible photographically, and in so doing, and making themselves invisible photographically, they highlight these sort of Structural or sculptural qualities of these objects. Um, a chrom- chromogenic um, means that it is a photographic print made with light on light sensitive paper, but chromogenic prints can be made. In a dark room with an enlarger, but they can also be made by a digital processor that exposes photographic paper to light sensitive paper. So, in the case of this truth, um, I'm sure that this is a digital print on photographic paper. And then the object itself, the photograph, is mounted to this plexiglass surface. Zero. Um, I I think they're kind of individuals in, I mean, clearly a lot of people have looked at, you know, decaying structures. They were interested in looking at structures like kind of while they were still in operation or immediately after, prior to their demolition. Like in some cases, apparently these structures were being demolished. Like another end of the plant would be in the process of being demolished while they were photographing another part of the plant. So they they gave priority to structures that were in the process of, of being demolished. But in terms of this idea of a kind of a larger context in which they're operating. I think few people at the time in Germany were working in this particular way. Most art historians that I've read, kind of accounting for their work, situate themselves, situate the Bechers in relation to work from the 20s and the 30s, and also farther back in photographic history. Um, so they're very closely relink- linked to the new objectivity movement in Germany in the 20s and 30s with the work of people like the photographer August Sonder, who had an encyclopedic photographic project to look at all types of people. So this kind of notion of a classification system, the notion of a project that's encyclopedic and that in a way can never be completed, right? You try to photograph every type of person by profession, you're you know, inevitably going to fail. If you try to photograph every industrial structure, you're inevitably going to fail. So they're, they're, I think, more often related. They kind of, you know, they start this in the 50s in post-war Germany, um, the linkages are sort of jumping back over World War II and the Third Reich period to the, uh, to the 20s and the 30s. Um, and there are instances of, of publications that I think are really kind of interesting um, predecessors where but they were mostly designed for like architects and engineers that were, that were looking at these, you know, kind of factory buildings from the 20s and 30s from different cardinal points and things, and those seem like cl- kind of clear precedents. So there are Uh, I, th- I, think, I think it's really hard to say. They're like, if you read their interviews, they're both extremely eloquent, but also extremely elusive. They don't, you know, show their cards. So it's a little bit hard to say where they come down, but I think there's, there's definitely this biographical aspect to it. I mean, the whole they came to photography in the first place out of making paintings of these areas in the landscapes that they had grown up in. So there's both a biographical element to it, but I think they're, you know, The things that they highlighted are sort of at the root of industrial society, you know, pulling coal out of the ground. They're photographing blast furnaces, which are like the kind of zero point in the manufacture of steel. You know, you put all this material in, you heat it up, and it becomes liquid steel. So they're definitely looking at these things that are kind of the origin that allows something like what's going on in the Frank Thiel picture to happen. They're looking at mining, you know, where. all these other materials for building our world have come from. So yeah, I I think in that respect, there's a kind of social aspect to it, but it's not an advocacy kind of standpoint. Any other questions? All right, well, thanks so much, appreciate it.